I grew up in Kingston Projects at the height of the crack epidemic. So drugs and alcohol were the norm. One of the earliest memories that I have and one of the motives for making this show was my beloved Aunt Linda, who's now deceased. Linda was your favorite auntie. Candy before meals, all-day excursions to Whataburger, McDonald's, and Captain D's all in one day. She even taught me how to rebel against my mom. In my memoir, I write about her, that if you ever had a chance to see a black woman get ready, this was something to witness. Linda had a voice that sounded like Aretha Franklin, had that cheap white diamonds perfume, and put lipstick on her cheeks and rubbed it in to be blush. She moved through the world at her own pace. But she was also the black sheep of our family. Linda was a crack user, and when my mom was at work, working two jobs, she was our babysitter. And she would use right in front of me. I would see her descend into her high and hallucinate. Now what I loved about Aunt Linda was she was also more powerful than what she did. And I had to grow in this for myself. She taught me to see people not their habits. And like my Aunt Linda, our guest Margaret's story is one where all of the ills of what she's been through sit in her body like a shackle and she's forced to carry it all invisibly to the rest of the world as she moves through a series of turning points. Margaret still lives to speak on this now that she's on the other side. And I can only think of if my Aunt Linda had came on the other side too. This foreshadows where we're going and some of the emotional range you might need for this episode. As we talk through Margaret's story today, we'll touch on a lot of things that we often don't acknowledge about drug culture. Everything from gender politics and dynamics to mental health and trauma, to the ways that place plays a vital role in who we are and how we even make decisions. Margaret's story will hopefully challenge all of us to think a bit differently about some of us are often robbed of the choices we want before we even have a chance to make them. Margaret grew up in the inner city with drugs around her. Growing up where there's police and lots of people compacted into an isolated space. A space where you see drugs, but no one is really explaining to you what they are. I wanted to know from Margaret how she made sense of drug use in her environment and who were the people using them. Um, that is really interesting because I always think about this often and I always compare it to the first time that I smelled um, crack cocaine burning because uh, I had always like my mother, she smoked marijuana probably all of my life. Like she always smoked. I mean, it was reefer at the time because we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s. So she smoked marijuana and it has a distinct smell. And I always knew that smell. And I had somewhat an understanding as a child that this was not a cigarette. You know, this wasn't like cigarettes. This was something else they were smoking. And I could tell that there was some, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to say you could tell it was illicit because I don't even know if a child's mind can grasp that concept, but I knew it was something to it. And it was one of those things like you saw, but you didn't say, you know, you didn't bring it up and you didn't talk about it. But the smell, the smell is, I became very familiar with the smell and I could almost recognize it instantaneously. So the first time when it was someone in my neighborhood that I grew up with, um, one of 
you know, a parent of one of my close friends and I smelled them smoking crack cocaine, the smell was different and I just could not, um, I could not bring myself to ask like what was going on because like in the South, we're raised that a children should stay in a child's place. And like you said, Antonio, it's really up to us to just really make, um, you know, sense of what we're going through because we really don't know. Nobody explains these things to us. Yeah. It's just something in my little mind. And I would say I was maybe like 10 or 11 at the time that knew that like this was probably crack you know we we heard so much about crack and during that time everybody was demonizing crack because it was just to the point where uh all the ills that were coming from um drug use were just being intensified and over amplified and we were only just seeing the negative effects of crack use you know and we were just really caught up in the hype of all the media you know like after movies like new jack city you know we just really even in the inner city community even black people you know that was just the devil to us you know crack was single-handedly tearing up our communities so uh, there was already that negative connotation that went with crack and for me to smell it for the first time i you know like i said that i will never forget that day ever Margaret's story made me recollect on those moments when my Aunt Linda would use. I remember the small things like her dropping the boiling pipe and having to grab a hot towel to pick it up after she fell out. Or the stench that made me cover my nose and the reactions to it being quite different than those I saw of people smoking reefer. Where weed had you more sedated and relaxed, crack had you foaming at the mouth and hallucinating. As a child seeing this and knowing something ain't right, but also not having the power to call someone out on it can have a lasting impact on your relationship. It's sort of like you're growing in love with someone, but you really can't discuss the real issues that are impacting you. In learning about her childhood and seeing these dynamics, I wondered what her dreams were when she was growing up. What does she want to be? Young Margaret wanted to be... So many things. I think the one thing I've always wanted to be and like it, it's the one consistent thing because like young Margaret wanted to do it all. Um, but I wanted to be a teacher. Yeah, always wanted to be a teacher. And for me, as a young Margaret, teaching was um, very traditional and very orthodox. So it was in a classroom with a lesson plan and my students were school age, you know, and again, like 20 25 years later, I can look at it and tell that, you know, even as the work I'm doing now, there's still opportunity to teach and learn. So that's why I'm glad I was able to re-conceptualize um, what I wanted to be when I grew up. So that way, you know, I can have agency over the dreams that young Margaret had. Like, I, you know, I would see like Barbie, she'd be a vet, she'd be an astronaut, she'd be a teacher. I wanted to do everything. and now you know, along with my life experience and everything I've been through, I realized that as a community outreach worker, I can almost be all of those things. I just had to reframe like what that would look like. But I wanted to be a teacher because um, I was always pretty bright. So I wanted to be the person in my community, in the inner city, that was able to pass knowledge on to everybody else and to bring everybody up to speed. And that's what teaching was always to me. Drugs and relationships would eventually interrupt that dream. 
She gets into a relationship with a guy that teaches her and introduces her to a different lifestyle. In telling me about these things, she also mentions her need for male acceptance at the time. We're about to discover how the conditions of her environment, the struggles for self-acceptance, would be the seeds of Margaret having an unhealthy relationship with herself. So, like, the expectations weren't there for others because the expectations weren't there for self. You know, so if I didn't, like, you know, some people need a swift kick in the butt to be shown like where they need to be in life and I got those in so many different ways but that's a whole nother podcast Antonio <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, it just wasn't I didn't have those healthy expectations I didn't have that healthy um, way of looking at myself so I couldn't expect that from other people you know and yeah. I didn't have a healthy self image of, of, of who I was and how great that could be. I always wanted to be more and evolved and different and something more like, you know, the images I would see off TV and stuff. Like I just wanted to be perfect and I just wanted to be the best and I just wanted to do everything I could to get people to uh, see me as something greater than what I thought I was presenting to them. Not knowing that, you know, like I said, the years later that I would realize that I was enough and it was okay. But if I didn't have that expectation of myself, I definitely couldn't expect it from other people. So if I was half-stepping, of course, they were going to come to me the same way. So all of those relationships were unhealthy just because I wasn't a whole person. So I'm pretty sure they weren't either because, I mean, if, if they were whole, I don't even see why they would have the time for somebody who was as broken as me. So it's a bunch of shattered people just trying to, you know, piece things together. Margaret was shy, underexposed, and wanted to open up. And drugs facilitated that while they also dampened the pain she saw in her home. This led Margaret to start using drugs at the tender age of only 15. My drug use, for the most part, like at its heaviest point, will always be like um, ecstasy and cocaine. And this was like in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and um, the like the first time I used ecstasy was with um, a guy, two, a group of guys. You see what I'm saying? And um, like the cocaine use, I talked to the girls at the jail now, like I don't see how people can afford that drug. I definitely don't see how a 15 year old was affording that drug, but now I see what it was. It was made available by guys. In this community, the dealers were the ones with the access to the drugs. And in such a small place, it was inevitable that Margaret would eventually find interest in them and they find interest in her. And so it doesn't become hard to understand how a 15-year-old would have access to drugs. This was in New Jack City, where Nino Brown had one of his boys selling to little kids. This was real life. This wasn't your traditional profile of a corner boy. These were drug dealers that were all within Margaret's network, Guys she attended school with, likely grew up with, that had now become drug dealers. That was my social network. Those were the people closest to me. Those were the people. Um, these these are the people that you would generally date. You know what I'm saying? The people closest to you, the people you went to school with, the people you saw every day in your community. These were the individuals that were also the people who 
sold drugs. Margaret is now dating these guys, and the drugs are in front of her all the time. And the culture is responding too, now glorifying the lifestyle of drug use and sales. It had become normalized around her, and eventually it led to her trying drugs for the first time. But what was her first time like? Um, I would say not a first, not the first time, because the first time, like I was so nervous, I didn't get to enjoy the high. But I can tell you, like the second time, um, I went in like uh, eyes wide open with the ecstasy and it was just really experienced. Like sometimes I tell people I'm careful not to romanticize it because it was just the most intense feeling that I've had ever. And I enjoyed it. I've had plenty of other intense feelings that were not welcome, you know, where people, you know, I've had some adverse reactions to drugs before and some of them were intentionally done to me. So it's a lot. It's a lot. But um, that one time when I had full, I guess, you know, I say autonomy over what was going on and I felt empowered. And this is no way trying to glorify drug use. I never want to do that. But this is just very honest dialogue where this was just a very good feeling. I felt that um, I felt very soulful. I felt like I had a lot of rhythm. I felt like I was a very excellent um, lover. I just felt really good. Like I just felt really good about myself. And as somebody who I told you before, was struggling with self-esteem and self-image and acceptance, that's very empowering for somebody like that. It, it really like, gave me a heightened sense of self, which is also yeah. like with cocaine, you get a heightened sense of self. And that is um, kind of not a bad thing for a teenager who is suffering from self-esteem issues or feels like a reject at school. And then you feel something that makes you feel good about yourself. It's kind of hard for us to say to that person, you're not allowed to feel good about yourself. For Margaret, the idea around dependency ran rapid, with not only substances, but with relationships too. Proximity seems to have mattered a lot. Everything was and needed to be so close in their environments, relationships, household, and entanglements, that the need for these things became reasons for staying together. Drugs, though, played a major part of all of this. Margaret's decision about her life seemed to revolve around finding new normals around drugs, upping the type she tried, and using them as a proxy to feel secure in herself. But as Margaret is about to find out, some bonds and decisions you make are harder to undo. Some actually manage to be forever. So let me get this, let me get this right. You're in high school, mm-hmm. and you said you, you started using cocaine while you were in high school? Yep. Margaret is 18 and dating a guy who is providing her with access to cocaine. They've been involved for a while and she is now pregnant. Yeah, so um, the the father was there. And um, again, this was my using partner. Like this was my access to drugs. So he, he, he was, he knew everything. And um, he was there when the test revealed itself. And we really just looked in each other's eyes and knew that, you know, that part of our relationship was over and that something new was going to happen. And we both chose to be responsible about, you know, what was happening for us. 
And so you're And that was really an impetus for a lot. Like, yeah, I I mean, like, I'm pretty sure he used after that point, but like we never used to get together. He never used around me. So you immediately. That same moment. What that pregnancy test um, uh, really symbolized to me was the end of an era because everything I described to you about use up until that point just was riddled with like selfishness and irresponsibility, you know, because I didn't have any responsibilities. I was 15, 16, 17 years old, 18 years old. Bringing a new life into this world has brought a lot of things into focus for Margaret. She's starting to realize that life is bigger than the drifting and sliding by that she'd been doing. Only coasting by on a drug-fueled haze and driving herself deeper into darkness with her mind and body. But it also snaps something else for her. That for a child's life to be something of worth, her own life had to be of worth. But all of these epiphanies are on the other side of a dark tunnel that Margaret's got to go through first. I had my first child. Um, didn't really use much after, I mean, didn't really do anything after then because I nursed him. So he was breastfed. And then um, before he was two years old, I had my second child. But in between that small period of time, I had ran into some relationship issues and I began to drink heavy. But it never got out of control because I ended up getting pregnant with my second child. And I abstained from drinking. Um, While I was pregnant with my second child, the father, he was um, arrested and he ended up getting 10 years fed time on the mandatory minimums for crack cocaine. And like my whole support system, as I knew it before, just really changed and altered. And I went from being like a free spirit to like a single mother of two. And so now I had to, yeah, I had to really buckle down. Like, so from this irresponsible carefree person that I described before I had to do a 180 I was somebody totally different you know and I just worked and took care of my kids and that's all that I did but it was still just so much like some of those voids had still not been filled and then like new voids had opened because I was without a partner and my grandmother who raised me had died and I had these two people who solely relied on me for all of their support so then I started drinking and I drank pretty heavily for almost two years. And then I stopped drinking for like five, six years. Nothing at all. Margaret is now a single mother of two and balancing the loss of her grandmother. She doesn't have a partner to help raise their kids. And so relapsing and feeling hopeless, she begins drinking heavily. That was like the beginning of a depressive episode that would last for like 10 years, but I didn't know what it was. And it was like um, almost cancerous, like a terminal illness that was eating me little by little inside, but I just did not have any idea of what it was. So I would just work all the time, take care of my kids, and I really didn't do anything to like relieve that stress. So when it was time to actually find something to relieve stress, I ran straight back to the bottle because I thought that that would be a good idea. But I went back to a quick fix that I thought was the lesser of the three evils. I'm like, you can't be a parent on cocaine. You can't be a parent on Etsy. None of these things work with being a parent of young kids getting up and going to work every day. And I always had a job because, like I said, so financial, you know, provider for these children. But the bottle is so easy to turn to because, like, everybody does it. You know what I'm saying? 
yeah, there's very easy to self-medicate on that. And my mother, um, and like people, they would come across prescription opioids and I just feel like I can't sleep at night. Like sometimes I would cry myself to sleep because I would be so lonely and just so tired. So I'm like a good way to skip to cry yourself to sleep is to take the pain pill because you just fall out. Not realizing that this is misusing, like this is not what pain pills are prescribed for. What was really needed here was a system where Margaret could fully see and diagnose herself first so she could be an attentive mother. It makes me think of how we overlook the trials and tribulations of the women in our lives. We blame them for not putting us first and themselves last. Margaret and I discuss how we fail women in particular who have to balance drugs in the community and find themselves without medical or social support. The strong woman rhetoric, it is it can be harmful. I won't say it is harmful. It's a compliment. I get it. And I used to revel in it. And people always say, you're such a good girl. You're so strong. You're such a good mother. And I appreciated it. But um, it didn't take away from the fact that all the things that I were going through, like nobody should have to go through all of that without proper support. Like that's almost impossible to expect somebody to be healthy after experiencing all of that. Like most of that is trauma that's not being treated. So we have to be very careful with how we offer up those kind of complimentary attitudes and um, celebrations to people because that's really um, invalidating to all the things like they have going on. Like, and I get what we're trying to do. And like I said, I used to revel in it. Like I used to love it. I used to feel so good. Like people used to really think that I was such an excellent mom and it made me feel so great. And then the one mistake I make in my life like the whole world comes down on me. But that's how I felt. Like this weight I had been carrying around forever, I let it slip off a little bit. And that was just so hard to understand that I just beat myself up really bad for it. And that mistake is that she's been caught with marijuana. Margaret's been arrested. She's on the verge of losing everything. On the heels of having already lost so very much, it's a different light and lens we're looking through when we know so much more about her life her home upbringing, and what she's been exposed to and even saddled with. Of course, the criminal justice system doesn't want to give space to this sort of nuance, and most of us on the outside of these situations don't want to either. It wasn't just that music and movies glorified drugs, but it allowed for a system reframe of folks like Margaret, our sisters, our brothers, and our neighbors. They were portrayed not as loving people, but as irresponsible junkies who needed to be punished. Margaret was a woman too strung out, desperate and corrupted by her own bad choices and behavior to be able to lead a good life. Many probably would find it helpful, justice even, to have her removed from her children, her job, her freedom. And the prevailing notion was sending her to prison would help her get right. But Margaret's story is more convoluted and vulnerable than that, And what these moments don't capture is the idea that some people are actively striving to get out of the quicksand of their lives. But the terrain slips faster than they can actually climb, especially when you start it at the bottom of the pit. Now that she was in the hospital for the first time and doctors were able to fully diagnose her depressive state, what did they tell her? How did she move forward understanding what had happened to her? And um, just to really um, give like... uh, um, 
deeper outlook to everything we've discussed up to this point. Um, I learned so much about chemical imbalances and how I may have possibly had um, um, marijuana-induced seizure, you know? Mm. Not even knowing anything, like, you know, just not even knowing how um, your um, neurotransmitters work. Yeah, and how not even knowing how particular how your body balances chemicals, right? And everybody's body is like physiologically different. Those are some of the first things I learned when I got there. Then I learned about how depression isn't just always like because when I was hospitalized, it was the crying and can't stop. But they showed me that this had been going on ever since. Like you know, my grandma died, and the partner was arrested. And so that, that was a triggering moment for 10 for years. Yeah, well, th- not even a triggering moment. Like I had been moving downhill for 10 years. Like only thing that could happen is what happened because it was never getting treated. Now that's, that's something. The only and thing the, that yeah. w- would happen. W- what did you just say? The only thing that could happen was what did happen. Is what did happen. Yeah. Yeah. That was the only way that that was ever going to um, resolve itself is if I was to end up in a hospital, you know, in a catatonic state. And so you're there. For- it wasn't going to fix itself. And another thing that I learned is about, like I said, anxiety disorders and personality disorders and how those things look different on everybody with drug use and how I told you the whole extrovert introvert thing, how that wasn't just me tripping. That's a real thing, you know. And so this is actually, that was self medication. It was self medication. How did that work for you? Like, what did you know about yourself now that you didn't know before in terms of the anxiety disorder and the multiple person personalities? At that particular moment, what were you thinking? Um, for me, um, and a lot of people think that I'm crazy, but that was a very um, also enlightenment period because again. I told you, like, when I was young, I I didn't have a name for these things. I didn't know what was going on. So just having that insight and just being able to hear that it's just not me tripping or it's just not me just being emotional and just hearing that these are things that um are all a part of these disorders and diagnosis is very good for the self-actualization of Margaret, which brings you to the the person who can speak to you today the person who can put all of these experiences these adverse childhood experiences these early adulthood traumas like the person who can put all of this into words and share their story the person who can go out here and practice harm reduction and just really advocate for others that was all very helpful in that and i'm glad it happened and a lot mm-hmm. of people like you're glad you went to the night house i'm absolutely glad i did so you ended up going absolutely. before the you ended up going bef- before the judge, and then what happened? Yeah, so um, I got a um, conditional judgment, and it was based on two years of supervised probation. And at the end of my probation period, that the charges would be dismissed. Because, again, that's a whole nother podcast. Like, my co-defendant was really who they were after, and I was just like a, you know, collateral um consequence you know what i'm saying they was like if we can't get him we're going to use you a lot of times um we've seen it like partners family members are used for their witness testimony you know 
Yes. And they use like criminal offenses against you to leverage, you know what I'm saying? Um, I guess corroboration or, you know, things like that. They want you to um, cooperate. Yeah. And it was just really a stall out between me and the justice system because I did not want to be one of those people. I just think those are unfair uh, practices in and out of my situation, but just to anybody. Margaret is standing before the judge and essentially one of her worst fears is being realized that she could potentially be taken away from her children. A long time away from my kids is like two weeks, two months, and then facing that two years, you know, the sentence carried up a maximum of 24 months. Those two years without my kids after they had already gone at that point, eight years without their father. That was just something that I just, you know, it was my worst nightmare. Margaret is an overcomer and learned so much along the way. But who is Margaret today? And what is she doing now to benefit harm reduction work in North Carolina? My role is I do um, community outreach. And um, I also do some organizing amongst people who are HIV positive, Hep C positive. And um, I also do outreach in um, places where incarcerated people reside, um, commonly known as jails. But, you know, I just rather use other wording. Um, I go and uh, once a week, I'm at the jail in my county and I'm speaking with the men and women there, um, offering them overdose prevention and survival classes, um, offering them good Samaritan classes, teaching them more about harm reduction and advocacy and community organizing, um, just giving them, again, being that teacher, giving them that knowledge they can take with them as they travel through their journey in the criminal justice system. Some of them will be released from the county jail and other others will be going into prison for a while. Um, I'm going to keep real with you, Antonio. Some of the people I've met since the year and a half that I've been allowed to teach that class have been sentenced to 20, 30 years. And it's it's getting kind of hard for me to see some of these injustices still going on. But and tell me still if, in, in what you're referring to those messages. Yeah, is that the country right now is in a in a phase of legalizing drugs through like mm-hmm. med- well the country's in a phase of legalizing marijuana use for and when you look at our community and the sentencing disparity for nonviolent crimes is that the is that the injustice that you're you're referring to is that our people are sentenced more for drugs than other communities Absolutely. And always have been. And just those harsh sentencing guidelines that they're even trying to, you know, um, change today. I just don't think they ever should have been in place. Like they weren't evidence based. It was all based on like fear. And um, now that we're changing it, there's still like a lot of people I know. I mean, a lot of people I know have at least one marijuana charge, you know, mm-hmm. and marijuana is still a felony in North Carolina, you know. So a lot of people like and a lot of guys I know, like in, in their continuum of criminality, a lot of them started with that one weed charge and people don't really give enough attention to how that may have impacted the rest of, you know, their life in criminality. Clearly now you can't get a job, you can't go to work, 
And so if you're unable to participate in the normal economy, you have to create an underground economic system to provide resources to your family. This leads to crimes of poverty with many resorting to sell drugs, most notably marijuana. Margaret discusses the mandatory minimums for drugs and how it creates great disadvantages to harm reduction work. Okay, so I'll tell you in my situation, and again, like, I know I'm going to say, and people are going to be like, well, that's not for personal use. But I mean, if somebody smokes pot all the time, it's so much easier for them to buy uh, 28 grams at a time. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So with my case, it was possession of 28 grams. I mean, that's... um. Like, if you get somebody who's like a pothead, they're going to smoke at least seven grams a day. So do you see what I'm saying? So that's just better than just going to cop all day. But for the police, they feel like if you got 28 grams, then they give you with intent to sell and deliver. So with the intent to sell and deliver, um, my sentence was up to 24 months. And then also they tacked on all the other charges that come along with those. Um, and it's like... Um, so it was the possession, the possession when it tends to sell and deliver. And I lived across the street from a school. So it's possession when it tends to sell and deliver in a school zone. So that's another thing that you see in North Carolina where they just tack on like so many other offenses because they need something to stick. And that's how they get people to plead. Do you see what I'm saying? And then yes. condense their charges. So, um, so a plea again, deal, that 28 grams. A plea deal with the intent to sell is better than what they, the maximum. Six minimum. months for this. Yeah. Eight months for that and 24 months for this. Yeah. Cause that could always be box guarded. Cause a lot of things, especially with sentencing are going to be at the judge's discretion, you know? Yes. But and you don't want to be the person that, you know, makes the court, officers work a little bit harder that day you know because you're really just i mean a lot of it's based on how a person is feeling at that time where where you're going to allow in that statute and where you're going to allow in that sentencing charge so a lot of people are encouraged to plead because you just it's really the role of the dice sometimes of even with plea bargains like sometimes i see that those don't always be getting uphill and that's still my work that i've been doing at the local jail so it's just really sometimes in people's best benefit to already know the time they're facing before they enter into a courtroom what has margaret witnessed in the treatment of opioid sentencing versus crack sentencing what is the true difference in the national response and the community response to these drugs um, I will say what I've seen is um a lot of smoke and mirrors because like um because there's been like a victim in this opioid epidemic, which really there were no victims in the crack epidemic, like everybody was guilty, you know, users, sellers, everybody was there were no victims. The poor little crack babies were victims, but then we found out years later that they probably didn't exist as much as we thought they did. But um, like right now in the opioid epidemic, the victims, they, there's there's a lot of reform around how we're going to um, sentence the victims and people who struggle with opioid use disorder. But I can tell you, like in my county especially, um, the people who sell opioids are getting this is for me it's like deja vu and it's back to those mandatory minimum crack laws like in my county there's a blanketed one million dollar bond for anybody who traffics heroin 
a blanketed $1 million bond where we know that bonds aren't supposed to be blanketed. Like they're supposed to be based on like so many different factors. But the DA made a statement saying that anybody charged would be getting that $1 million bond. So I don't see us getting sweet ends of the deal in this epidemic either. Again, like I said, what was going on in, in with crack was everybody was bad. You know, if you use, you were bad. There was no special categories or you weren't getting treated differently. If you had a cocaine use disorder versus if you were just like, you know, a drug kingpin. Of course, they were getting more time because they were getting caught with, you know, larger quantities of the drugs. But you hear stories of people who were like drug mules, um, cocaine users. And if they were just caught up in the wrong conspiracy network at the time, they were getting harsh sentences too. Yeah. But now, yeah, but now we have, you know, for the opioid use disorder, like now in the opioid epidemic, they're really drawing lines and saying like, who's a user, who's a dealer. And this is a victim and a villain. And I've seen like one of the guys in my class that I teach at the jail, it was, I believe, um, maybe 28 grams of heroin. And this guy got 18 years. He's not even 30 years old yet. He left my class about a month ago to go serve those 18 years. And it was one of the hardest things that we faced since we've been teaching that class. And what's the name of the class? He's a really good kid. And it's called the Good Samaritan class. And the other class is called the Opioid Overdose Prevention and Survival class. So in the Good Samaritan class, this really focuses on drug users and drug dealers? Mm-hmm. And we just focus on the overall history of the drug war, of harm reduction, and 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 how we we really started, and we did like a timeline, and we moved up, and we just really want to show people all the things, and not really show them. Like I said, I love to teach and I love to learn. Some of the people in the class know much more than me and the other instructor, and they teach us all the time, and they have a lot of life and lived experience. Margaret paints what might be a familiar story here to some of you. It's the idea that when she was caught up in the system for drug use, there was no motivation by authorities or the courts to use any kind of discernment in how they punished people. The notion of contextualizing usage amounts, the type of drug, and the potential role or motivation was never there. It didn't matter if you were a drug dealer, a recreational user, or someone that needed it as the only recourse for medicine or care. The system saw you as a poor, malicious black drug offender. And so fines and punishment were levied at unreasonable levels and with the same disregard, no matter the offense or the person. This wasn't justice, this was racism and prejudice enacted through an organized legal system. And in true fashion, as the drug epidemic moved to a closer white center, all of a sudden, everyone on the legal side wanted to parse the situation and details a whole lot more. They wanted to get under the hood, understand, prevent, and contextualize things a bit more. Yet still, there wasn't sufficient justice for black folks like Margaret. We still believe most in the vulnerability, goodness, and innocence of white people in this country, no matter what the actions are that they take. Their crimes are always cause for pause and understanding. There's that familiar tinge of well, there must be a good reason for this to have happened, which is basically saying we're innocent no matter what. And that's nowhere near what black people get 
we have a justice system that makes it hard to hold white people accountable for their crimes. White people get pity. Everyone else gets pissed. So now, what does Margaret really want for her life? To be able to let my work speak for me, you know? I wanted to do my ultimate goal, Antonio, with my life is to get to a point where I never have to say anything again and I never have to write any more stories because everything that I've done has been a model for somebody else and to let my work actually speak for me and to really just do everything that I've always said I was going to do and continue to do that and just have it a model out there for somebody to come behind me. I want to be somebody else's Imani Woods. You know, I want somebody to study my walk and my principles and my philosophy, and that will be the most touching thing to me if I can inspire a young human service humanitarian harm reductionist in the future. A variety of people who listen, some people who might be aware that they have an addiction, some people are hiding things from parents, lovers, friends. Talk to the people out there who are on a journey, just like you were, and the road will be hard, but there's always hope. What do you tell our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, the people about drugs today and actually getting the help that they need and deserve? Um. Like you said, um, with, where there's life, there's hope. And where there's hope, there's life, you know? And though, for me, those are, have been my words to live by for like the last five or six years, you know? As somebody who hit the absolute bottom and had to rise back up, I realized that I had to be present for the change to happen. I had to be around for the betterment of Margaret. And I'll say that to everybody else there. You, you're going to have to show up and you're going to have to be around when, when those great things begin to happen for you, when those changes begin to happen for you, when those ties turn over for you, you will have to be there. So um, you just do what you can, when you can, with what you, what you have until you get to a place where it's just so much easier to do what you got to do for yourself, to be present for yourself, because it is going to happen. It always does. Ultimately, Margaret's life shows us the danger of not telling or understanding the full story around someone's life. I think, too, it's proof that just because you were born into the hardest of circumstances, surrounded by crack, marijuana, sexual violence, and the like, is still possible, though extremely hard, to have a life even when you intersect with those things. Margaret's life came with some undue amounts of sacrifice to her mental health, her emotions, her body, her freedom, her family, her children, her professional life. And yet she's still persistent, even as things got wrenched from her. There's a lot of pain wallowing through the criminal justice system. And that's complicated by the different ways the rules get written and rewritten because of race, class, and gender. And for Margaret, this isn't just about those things. It's been complicated by all of the other roles she's played. A mother, a partner, and an advocate. We often say that mass incarceration started 
with the intentional targeting of black and brown communities. But it also took root when we convinced ourselves that harming people was really helping them. Systems of justice and support will only get better if we're finding ways to include the people most impacted and intimate with them. But that's only temporary. Margaret's story shows us that in this new promised land, we need a whole new system. One that doesn't rewrite the rules for some, but one that rewrites the rules for all. It's the type of system that doesn't put you away for using drugs, but builds a community of support around you to help you along on your journey. This is another episode of The Promised Land. I'm your host, Antonio Saunders.